Happy Monday, and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, uh, welcoming our newest Bulwark staff member, Will Salatin, uh, first of all, to to the Bulwark and back to the podcast. So good morning. Happy Monday, Will. Uh, thank you, Charlie. It's a great day. So you got you have your key fob, you got your parking pass, you got your, what do you get? You get your, you know, get your HR package, photo ID. There was a little, there was kind of a, there was a special sort of uh, never Trump vaccine they had to like give me three doses of before I could walk in the building. Yeah, but you're official because you're now on our Slack channel. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> now here's where I get to find out all the secrets of the temple. I'm really looking forward to that. There, yeah, I don't know about the secrets of the temple, but so I was hoping that we could have this first podcast talking about your farewell column in Slate where well, I, I thought that was really an interesting and, and thoughtful discussion of how people should get out of their bubbles and what you've learned over the last 24 years. And, and you know, maybe we will get to it. Okay. But here's the problem. You want to have these days where you say, you know what, let's not talk about Trump today. That's just, just, that's, can we just move on from Donald Trump? And then, and then Trump has that rally down in Texas and puts out the latest batshit crazy statement out of Mar-a-Lago. So if you don't mind that much, Will, can we just start to do a little bit of catch up over the, from the weekend? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way to go. So the former president of the United States, Goes down to Texas to speak to one of his rallies and uh, no points for subtlety here. And and this is what I wrote in my newsletter yesterday. I mean, the, the extraordinary thing about these, these scandals is they take place in broad daylight or under Klieg lights in real time. There's no there's no mystery or subtlety. And here's the former president not just embracing the January 6th insurrection, but I was going to say literally dangling pardons, but that's that's redundant. I mean, he's dangling pardons to the people who attacked the Capitol, who attacked and assaulted police officers. Here's Donald Trump. If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. There it is. Will Salton, what's what's going on there? I, I you know, I, again, I'm not surprised that he's that he's doing this, that he's holding it out. I guess I was a little surprised that he says it out loud, reads it off the teleprompter. Hey, any of you thinking of cooperating or anything? Um, but, you know, this is a guy that's obstructed justice before and it's worked for him. So why not do it again? Your thoughts? Yeah. So first of all, I don't think he read it off the prompter because this was at a late part of the speech. He was talking about another topic and he sort of did a by the way mm. thing. I think it's what he actually feels. But you know that, Charlie, what is that cartoon? Was it a New Yorker cartoon where the uh, the sheep are looking at the, you know, there's a big <laughs> yeah. billboard of the wolf and he says, I'm going to eat you. And they, they're saying like, yeah, I like him. He tells it like it is. I, this is totally the wolf saying, I am going to eat you. If you let me back into the White House, I'm once again going to abuse the most authoritarian power in the Constitution of the United States, the, 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 the pardon power. And, uh, and he, you, he used it, you know, on his way out to pardon all the people who cover it up for him. Uh, obviously, one of the most corrupt things a president has ever done. And he's just saying, once again, he's going to use it now for the people who tried to commit a coup on his behalf. And to me, the reason why Donald Trump remains interesting isn't because it's Trump himself. It's because of the reactions of 
yes. leaders, so-called leaders of his party, that's telling us something much more serious than about this one guy. Well, I've been saying that for about five years that, you know, Trump, Trump is Trump. You know, it, 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 what is amazing is that people look at Trump and go, yeah, that's uh, that's the guy I want to make commander in chief. So the I, I want to just dwell on this for a moment because this pardon power is something that clearly he's you know been willing to deploy before. He's willing to flex before. Probably one of the worst ideas of the founding fathers, but we can talk about that a little bit later. So he's not only saying to anyone who was involved in January 6th, but I think by implication, anyone else who's held legally accountable for their role in his attempted coup. But also there's the very clear message that this might be prospective as well. He also was calling for mass protests if he is criminally charged. Let me play that because I think these are these are bookends of the two things that that he said that were um, profoundly unsubtle. And this thing, this part, he did read off the teleprompter. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. So... It's not just that he's saying that he's going to pardon the people who were involved in January 6th. It feels very clear that he's also sending a message prospectively that if any of you do anything in the future, I, I get maybe I am I'm pushing this a little bit far. The, the suggestion is that anyone who commits any act of violence or illegality on my behalf, I got your back. If I win, I'm going to pardon you all. Right, right. And this exposes one of the fundamental fictions of Donald Trump and the Republican Party under Donald Trump, which is that it is a party of law and order, right? So we heard all of the rhetoric in 2020 and in 2021 about the violence in the streets, the mayhem around Black Lives Matter, and that we Republicans don't accept that. We back the blue. Of course, we then have a, a coup, an attack on the capital of the United States in which police officers are assaulted. And the Trumpist position is we're on the side of the, of the people assaulting the police. But in addition to that, what you now have is the former president saying, go out and so-called protest, right? But essentially to commit acts of violence or threaten acts of violence on my behalf, on behalf of no other principle, on, right. on behalf of protecting me from the long arm of the law. And uh, he's, so he's calling for mob violence. That's basically what he, which is what authoritarians do, right? You masquerade as a populist, I'm representing the people, but the people that I'm representing are actually a mob that I have summoned to protect me against the law. And the point here, very clearly, the, I mean, the point of the, of the pardons, obviously, is to try to obstruct the investigation by discouraging people from cooperating. But the second part, I think maybe even more significant, the clear intent there is to intimidate prosecutors, saying that if you pursue these charges against me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to cry havoc and loose the dogs of MAGA on all of you. Somebody asked me over the weekend, do you think this will have any effect? Will this, in fact, intimidate any of the prosecutors? And my first reaction was probably not, but then you'd never know. You never know, are members of the grand jury in Fulton County, are they going to go, well, we could do this, but boy, I really don't want to, you know, divide the country even more. I mean, this is his intention, is to use that threat 
to stop the legal process from going forward. It's really a remarkable moment in American history. Yeah, uh, the, the intimidation of prosecutors, the intimidation of the January 6th committee, of basically any institution. What, I mean, what this is, is one guy trying to go directly to what he calls the people, which is his people. It is a relationship that is not based on rules. It is based on a personal appeal. And he's trying to summon these people, marshal them against people who are trying to enforce rules. Now, he's claiming that the people who try to enforce rules, i.e. the prosecutors, the January 6th committee, um, are actually corrupt themselves. But he uses that as a front to say, you know, because they are because they somehow don't represent the rules, we can have a completely lawless, chaotic, um, you know, violent uh, uh, uprising marshaled by me against them. So, okay, I, I want to play that second sound clip again and then stop it at a certain point because there's kind of a throwaway line word in there that, that I wanted to underline that at first I was going, what what is that about? Let's just play it again. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors okay, do right any- there. The racist thing, it's sort of thrown in there. And it took me a moment to realize, wait, why is he using the word racist? Could it possibly be because the DA in Fulton County, the attorney general in New York, and the chairman of the January 6th committee all happen to be African-Americans? And that he's weaponizing their racial identity to say that any action they take against him is racist. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on there, isn't there, Will? Yeah. You know what, Charlie? It's funny. I, you, you just flagged something that I had totally missed. So I heard that word racist. And I just to back you up on this one, he used that word. I, I didn't run a search on the transcript, but he used the word racist several times. So that was not, you know, a, a throwaway. That was, this is clearly a, a theme that he's going to hit. And the, I was thinking at the time, what do you mean racist? Like, what is he playing the race? Card? Yeah. But like you, you, You've 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 exposed to me what it, what what was really going on there, and it's. I, I, but I wonder if he's pushed it too far. Like if this is too too absurd that anybody who attacks Donald Trump is doing it because he's white. Uh, it's just so far fetched that I think that that's just going to be impossible for anyone to defend. But I've been wrong about that before. Uh, yes, no, I, I I think that that in the past when he's played it, I think it's been somewhat effective for him, which is why he keeps doing it again and again and again. Okay, so we had the rally on Saturday night, um, and and in case that was, uh, you know, lest we didn't get the message of that, he issued a statement then yesterday about the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, and let me just read it because it's only one paragraph. If the Vice President Mike Pence had absolutely no right to change the presidential election results in the Senate despite fraud and many other irregularities, how come the Democrats and rhino Republicans like wacky Susan Collins will come back to her? are desperately trying to pass legislation that will not allow the vice president to change the results of the election. Actually, what they are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election, exclamation point. And there, Will, there it is again. His goal wasn't to litigate the election, audit the results, return it to the state. You know, on January 6th, while his supporters were attacking the Capitol, he wanted Mike Pence to, his word, overturn the election. It's just... Yeah. So a lot of people have picked up on that. You know, it's the slip where you accidentally say what, you, what yeah. you're thinking. And to me, it exposes what has actually been going on all this time. That is, he's been trying to overturn the election and his rhetoric prior to this point 
was better at disguising that. In other words, you don't claim to overturn an election, right? You claim you actually won. It's like what Trump said, like the real insurrection was the, mm-hmm. was the so-called election. And then the actual insurrection was trying to restore that. And you, it's very important when you are an authoritarian to control the language, right? It's, it's Orwellian. And what happened here is he slipped and he reverted to the actual normal way of speaking, which is that what he was doing was trying to overturn the election. And he's made it impossible, right, for the people who defend and support him, the Lindsey Grahams, the Susan Collinses, et cetera, to um, to uh, continue with the charade that he's not actually trying to do what he's doing. Well, we'll see about that. Um, but obviously, this is pretty awkward for, you know, people who had been trying to come up with this alternative narrative. Sarah Longwell had a great tweet this morning. She said, a notable, predictable moment in the Trump cycle of horribleness. He waits for the GOP and conservative Inc. to really flesh out their, quote, it wasn't really a coup, got to move on, takes, before he comes out and says, it was definitely a coup, and I'm going to do it again. So, I mean, it's like, is it, you just get... Liz Cheney kind of summed up the weekend. She said, Trump uses language he knows he knows caused the January 6th violence, suggests he'd pardon the January 6th defendants, some of whom have been charged with seditious conspiracy, threatens prosecutors, and admits he was attempting to overturn the election. He'd do it again if given the chance. Right. So just Liz Cheney just kind of in a nutshell saying this is what happened. How are you fellow Republicans going to react? And we kind of know, right? Right, right. And one of the things that I really admire about Liz Cheney is she applies to the United States of America the same principles she applies to other countries. We have a strong man who is rising up in this country with a movement behind him. He's a danger to democracy and the rule of law. In any other country, the so-called party of national security, of of, uh, a strong foreign policy would, would stand up against that. At home, they roll over, they become doves, they rationalize the strong man, and she's not going to play that game. Okay, so Susan Collins goes on ABC yesterday morning, and she's uh, asked by George Stephanopoulos um, about Donald Trump's comments, uh, including the question of whether she would possibly support him for a second term in 2024. And here's the exchange. He was out in Texas last night suggesting he may pardon those if he were elected in 2024, uh, those who were part of the January 6th riots. Uh, Given that, can you imagine any circumstances where you could support his election in 2024? Well, we're a long ways from 2024, but let me say this. I do not think the president should have made, that President Trump should have made that pledge uh, to do pardons. We should let the judicial process proceed. You say we're January a long way away from- January 6th was a dark day in our history. And it was, and you voted to convict uh, President Trump uh, as well. Why can't you rule out supporting him in 2024? Well, certainly it's not likely, given the uh, many other qualified candidates that we have that have expressed interest in running. So it's very unlikely. Well, honestly, this should be the easiest freaking question in the world. Charlie, I, 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 I almost feel bad for these for these congressional Republicans because they go on TV and they're talking, they know before they go on, they're going to try not to talk about Trump, right? Because we need the Trump people to support us to win the election, but he's awful. And they go on and, and so there is 
no question that they are really prepared to say to that to, to answer the question the way they should, right? Which is no, I will never support this guy. He's you know outside the bounds of like democracy and the rule of law and the constitutionalism. But uh, she's decided before she went on she wasn't going to say anything. I mean, it's hard to imagine what question Stephanopoulos could put to her that would knock her off that talking point, right? That would, that would get her to say something. And that's true of so many of these senators and, and congresspeople. And yeah. they're, gonna, they're just going to have to drop it. See, th- what was interesting is, is the way he framed it. He pointed, he put it in the context of dangling pardons, and he put it in the context of the fact that she voted to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. And she's still not willing to say it. She's not up for re-election until 2026. I mean, Tim Miller has a great piece about all of this, that they are just unwilling to take on the political pain required to get rid of Donald Trump. They just won't do it. But it's going to take somebody saying, yeah, we're just we just we kind of need to move on from that. Totally. And and let me bring up one other person who was on the Sunday shows. And I mean, Susan Collins, at least, you know, voted to voted to convict. Um, She's been pretty good relative to other Republicans on a lot of this stuff. Lindsey Graham, however, has not. Lindsey Graham has been defending Donald Trump the entire time. And Lindsey Graham was on Face the Nation, was also asked about about Trump's statement about pardons. And what's remarkable to me about Lindsey Graham is, so he says, similar to, you know, he's similar to Susan Collins, I, I oppose this use, this abuse of the pardon power, right? I think it's wrong. You know, I don't think it should be done. But he also defends Donald Trump. I think he might be the most explicit advocate that Donald Trump should run again, should be the Republican nominee, should be president again. So the pardon power doesn't depend on Congress. The pardon power is exercised by the president. When the guy running for president or potentially running for president says, I am going to abuse the pardon power, it doesn't matter later on whether Lindsey Graham agrees with the pardon or not. What matters is whether Lindsey Graham and others are going to prevent this guy from getting to the presidency where he can abuse that pardon power on his own behalf all by himself. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think through w- w- what is going on in their minds other than the obvious, you know, Occam's razor, they're, they're, they're cowards and they're completely spineless. It, it, it is that sort of hope that maybe something will happen. Somebody will come along. Somebody else will take care of this problem. I just don't want to go through it myself. But of course, that's what people were saying back in 2015. And of course, all of the ways of rationalization that we've talked about, that sort of doom loop of relevance where you convince yourself that you you need to be relevant, you know, to stand up for important things by refusing to stand up for important things so that you can be at the table, that sort of thing. By the way, I have an email from Michael Wood, who is a waged that uh, courageous, heroic, quixotic congressional bid down in Texas last year. And he wrote me a long email on the question of, you know, would, would officials really push back against another attempt to overturn the, the elections? He says, you know, I, 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 I wish I could share, you know, optimism, how it would play out, but here's how he sees it going. And then it's how people like, for example, uh, you know, Dan Crenshaw, Nancy Mace, Mike Gallagher, Chip Roy would rationalize this, how the anti-anti-Trumpers like Rich Lowry would rationalize going along with this. And I don't think he's wrong. It, it, it makes for a good read. One other guest on the uh, Sunday shows, I don't know much about him. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who passed on a chance to run for U.S. Senate because he just didn't want to be part of a Senate that was against everything. So he was also on with CNN uh, talking about what the former president said over the weekend. Everybody needs to be held fairly accountable across. That's part of leadership. They shouldn't be pardoned. 
Of, of course not. Oh, my goodness, no. Oh, my goodness. Would you, camp- would you like to have the former president campaign with you in your reelection campaign in New Hampshire? I don't need anyone to campaign with me. I, look, I'm a big believer that as a candidate, you got to stand on your own two feet. You got to look your your fellow citizens in the eye. You got to earn their vote as you, not as as endorsements. Endorsements are fine and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm a big believer, whether you're running for the planning board, mm-hmm. governor or president, you got to look folks in the eye and earn the votes yourself. Hmm. So that seemed to be a signal to at least one Republican governor saying, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need Donald Trump to campaign with me. I'm guessing that there'll be a statement out of Mar-a-Lago attacking him in like, you know, by the time we post this. Yeah, well, I, you know, so what we're seeing is an entire sort of leadership class, if we can call it that, of a political party trying in various ways to rationalize, to get around this, you know, 800 pound gorilla in the middle of the, of the, of, of, I mean, they, they don't want to talk about Trump. They would like him, I don't know, to drop dead, to disappear, to facefully, to, to fade away. What Sununu is doing is actually one of the more functional responses, right? He's not going to go into Washington. He's not going to go into the Senate where he would have to be sort of be involved in that sort of thing. He's going to stay and be a governor. I mean, if you were a sane conservative today, right, you would like to be a governor. You'd like to be as far away from Donald Trump as possible. You'd like to be making policy um, and and not involved in sort of the crazy nationalization of Trumpism. Um, it, It, on the other hand, you know, it would be nice if some of the sane Republicans would say, I am going to go to Washington and I'm going to go there explicitly to change this, right? What they're doing is ducking it instead of getting into the fight on the right side. So let's switch gears for a moment. You, you mentioned Lindsey Graham on the Sunday shows. He also raised a lot of eyebrows by endorsing or at least uh, seeming to endorse uh, an African-American woman from uh, the state of uh, South Carolina for the, the Supreme Court. So uh, this would suggest that, that at least some of the candidates might have bipartisan support. But it's interesting the way that people have already taken sides on this without having a nominee. Just your your, your thoughts on the way the, the Supreme Court uh, nomination process has been playing out. Yeah, it's very weird. It's weird because Joe Biden came out and said the nominee is going to be of a specific race and gender. Um, And then on the Republican side, there is some opposition to that thematically. But but also they know that they have the court now. They just know that they have it locked in for a generation. And so the intensity isn't there the way it would be if this were the fourth seat or the fifth seat. This is the seventh seat, you know, the sixth seat. And so it's I think we're likely to have a relatively peaceful um, <laughs> transition, if I can call it that, to the to the next Supreme Court justice, because Republicans just don't need the seat, and it's also because it's being vacated by you know a member of the court's liberal bloc, Stephen Breyer. Yeah, they they may, they may be doing it, but it, it's unlikely that you're going to have the kind of votes that were routine back in the 1990s. I mean, it's it, it is it is worthwhile every once in a while going back and realizing what the votes were for people like. John Roberts, uh, what, what they were like for Scalia. You know, we have 90 plus votes. Some of the candidates on the short list, you would just assume that that at one time would have gotten overwhelming bipartisan support. But it seems more likely than not that this is going to look like very much a party line vote. That's another indication of the way the politics have changed so dramatically. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and, and it's sort of, it's that's that to me is more about the, the way, the extent to which politics has become both polarized and ideological, right? It, it didn't used to necessarily be that way. There was a little more overlap. And nowadays you're signaling with your vote on a Supreme Court justice to whom you are loyal. And, you know, that's 
that's unfortunate for a whole bunch of reasons. In this case, you know, there's the sort of uh, additional problem that the signaling is racial, right? I mean, you have, uh, I think it's Senator Wicker of Mississippi um, saying that this was some kind of a affirmative action case and that, that, that people should stand up to that. So it, it might get particularly ugly around that topic. Look, I, I, I want to make it clear. I, I have absolutely no problem with, with the president naming an African-American woman to the court. There are many that are incredibly impressive uh, who are certainly as qualified as any of the recent nominees, uh, you know, what, whatsoever. But I, you know, there's the right way, and like I, I, I maybe I should stop digging on on all of this. But I, I was trying to make the case so last week that there's a right way and a wrong way of going about it. And then the poll came out over the weekend, the ABC poll, which I'm sure you saw. A resounding majority of Americans want Joe Biden to quote consider all possible nominees to fill retiring Justice Stephen Breyer's seat on the Supreme Court. More than three quarters, 76 percent of Americans think Biden should consider everyone. Only 23 percent say he should automatically follow through on his pledge to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Although Democrats are more supportive of Biden following through on the pledge, 54 percent of Democrats still say that Biden should consider all possible nominees. Now, maybe in the end, this will be irrelevant. I was struck and maybe you could help me with this, Will. The reaction from progressives that appeared shocked by that result uh, or in denial about that result, even though it is absolutely consistent with every other public opinion poll we've ever had on how to go about affirmative action, that when you say in advance that a specific job or seat is reserved for somebody, it does not play well with the vast majority of Americans. And yet I just, I, I you know, I. I don't know. People seem surprised by that result, which tells me something about kind of the bubble that they're in or the, perhaps that they really don't understand how these issues, how talking about race actually plays with the electorate. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, basically. And the this is an area, one of many areas where liberals, progressives, whatever you want to call them, are just out of touch with the intuitions of millions and millions of Americans, of millions and millions of people. It's just, there is an intuition of fairness that you're not supposed to say. I mean, you don't go out up front and say, I'm going to restrict the list to people of a particular race or gender. Um, you can you can do that, right? You can rectify, I mean, look back over history. The progressives are not wrong about the history. It is absurd that we've had, what, 115, 120 Supreme Court justices in this country, and we've had, what, two, two black people. We've had five women, I think something, I think my number's right, one la Latina, uh, zero Asian Americans, is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's obscene, right? It's, and, and a lot of that was happened without anybody saying it. It was just, oh, here's another white guy, right? right? And right. it wasn't stated out loud. And that's part of how it happened. To undo that, which needs to be undone, right? We do need to sort of balance it out. You don't balance it out by saying, and now we're going to explicitly choose only those people because that violates that intuition that people have. And it undercuts the person who's coming in. Then everyone looks at her and says, you were only chosen because of X or Y. Okay, so this is... This is this is an important point. I think it does a disservice to the nominee. Also, it, it treats them as if they're all interchangeable, that, that because I'm not naming you, I'm naming a representative group 
that it's sort of like it could be any one of you. It's not your your personal qualities are really not the most relevant thing here. And I do think that that undermines that that does hurt the the person. But will you know we have people who are going to respond to us? Well, what about Reagan? Didn't Reagan say this? Didn't uh, didn't Trump say this with uh, Amy Coney Barrett? I mean, so this has been done in the past. This is not the first time that a president has said that I'm going to you know name you know, a woman to the court. So what, why is this being so controversial? Biden went out and said, I am going to nominate a person of this particular race, this particular gender. So it made it a campaign promise that he had to follow through on. There's an, there's an argument for subtlety, right? The subtlety is you're just not going to say that out loud. You're going to consider it and you're going to consider it for a very good reason, which is that these people have been underrepresented historically. And we're going to, we're going to rectify the the discrimination, the bias that went on before. But, you know, if you, if you make it explicit, it reminds me a little bit of like, um, I mean, in sports, if you, you know, I can understand how someone would like, it's like the entire first half, the referees called the game for this one team. Right. And then the other team finally gets a call and people stand up and get upset. But you, you, you need to be, you need to be less overt in the rectification of the previous mistakes. Yeah, and and that that may sound close to hypocrisy, but I think it is prudence. It is it is there's there is the right way and the wrong way to go about it. And I think that again, the people who are surprised by this poll, I was also struck. I don't know, you see much of the reaction to the poll, you know, that that people either didn't believe the poll or saw the poll as an indication of how stupid and racist Americans were, which, which again is um if we're going to be able to talk to one another, maybe we ought to recognize that there are differences of opinion uh, or even just differences of tactics how to get to the same result without necessarily being an, you know, an absolutely cancelable event. And I, I, it, it was, it was interesting to me to watch all of that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Charlie, I think what you're experiencing and a lot of people have experienced it is this abuse of the term racist to the point where it is cheapened, right? The currency of this word has, is just being lost every day. I mean, if you say that people who are offended by an explicit quota are racist, then the conclusion that most people are going to draw from that is that this word no longer has any meaning that they should be ashamed of. It's just become a, a card that is played a cynically, a weapon, a political weapon. And that would be a terrible thing to lose because we just had a president who was explicitly racist. And it was very difficult to make that argument in a way that people who needed to hear it could hear it because the word had lost its meaning. Well, I I have made this point uh, over and over and over again without much success, I I think. But it's hard to overstate um, the difficulty of saying that Donald Trump, he's the real thing. You really ought to be alarmed about that. When for decades, every Republican was accused of being racist, every and, and at a certain point, people just rolled their shoulder and they rolled their eyes. And so when the real thing came, when the real wolf came down the door, people thought, well, you know, we've heard this. We've heard this over and over and over again. I, I wonder about this with violence as well. You know, the folks who are trying to equate language with violence, you know, this thought is violence. These language, no, violence is violence, words are words. And it's really important to make a distinction between the two of them, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think we need a whole movement, a whole, a whole sort of trend of thought to think about exactly what you're talking about here. What are the, what are the ideas? What is the language 
whose value, whose import we want to preserve. And let's focus on protecting that. And we're going to protect it by being very sparing in our use of it. We're also going to protect it by criticizing abuse of it. We're going to say, no, actually, that's not racist. This is what's racist. And, and that enhances the credibility of the accusation when it is used. So this is a good segue into the, into the piece that you wrote, your farewell piece to uh, Slate, which I strongly recommend uh, people read. And you, it's a kind of it's a meditation on what's happened to our political discourse. You know that they, you know that in uh, you know ma- many publications on the right and the left, the range of political perspectives has shifted in a way that uh, make our echo chamber much worse. The liberal edge of left leaning outlets used to be liberal, now it's socialist. The right edge, which used to include Republican viewpoints, is now liberal. Conversely, on the right, Fox News has lost its more moderate pundits. Everybody's gotten more extreme. So all of this has gotten, and and the debates and the discussions have gotten more and more difficult and therefore more rare. Are are you optimistic that we can break free from the chamber? I mean, you point out it takes work to do this. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic that people can do this, that they're willing to break out of, of these echo chambers, our comfort zones? So I wouldn't put it in terms of optimism. I don't know the answer to that. So I, that, that would be sort of a, that, I think of that as like declarative mode, what is or is not going to happen. And yeah, I think right. too, too many times we in the sort of pundit class look at things that way, what will happen, what won't happen. Right. I th- we need to live more in the imperative mode. What should we do? What must we do? Mm-hmm. Right. And we must do this. We must do this because we need to do it because the way things have been going is making everything worse. And it's up to each of us to step in. And, and the, the word that if I had to summarize the argument of this piece in one word, the thing that is most important, the word is integration, right? Now, we're familiar with that in the context of ethnicity, of gender, of religion. We we need a more integrated society. And we need it partly because of fairness, but partly because we learn from each other. And if you only talk to people who come from your background, you don't know what it's like for other people. And you don't know, there's a lot you can learn from people who are different from you. We need to bring that same idea, integration, into the conversation about political differences. Because what has happened is we are increasingly segregated politically. We're only talking to people who already agree with us. And that weakens us. It makes us complacent, lazy. Um, we're just parroting what what the people around us say. And, and we're not learning. So I would encourage everybody, get out, find ways. Social media makes it easier. The internet makes it easier to go out find people who are different from you, find the the people who are different but smart and listen to them. Hear what they have to say about what you think. And you will discover there are a lot of things you think that you will rethink as a result of that conversation. Well, you inspired me yesterday in my newsletter. I actually posted an excerpt from a blog post from Outside the Beltway, which was quite critical of my position on uh, the Supreme Court nomination, thought I was completely wrong, but did so in a way that I thought it was intellectually honest, and I found it refreshing that here was somebody that that did not argue in bad faith, did not try to distort uh, the argument, but just made a contrary case. And and it was, I, I felt it was a, it was a good dialogue, but also it was one of those rare sightings in the wild of <laughs> social media, a good faith argument. Because it, have you noticed that? I, I think one of the things that's happened in the last several years and and maybe it has something to do with Trumpism or maybe it's just uh, the social media, how so so much of what passes for debate is really just ad hominem attack. It's almost as if there's large segments 
of the commentariat out there or these people on social media that have actually forgotten how to marshal a debate, an argument, and that that ad hominem attacks or whataboutism has just sort of, su- it's like sucked, you know, sucked that, that need to actually make a logical case out. Right. And the logical case may not be rewarded with the, the way that the ad hominem is rewarded, right? So, so well, that's part exactly. of it, I think to me, the underlying problem is what are you, what are you trying to accomplish here? And I see this on Twitter, right? You, the dunk. What is the point of the dunk? The point of the dunk is to like get a bunch of people cheering for you yeah. to sort of win. win the, if you start with a different attitude, which is what can I learn, right? How can I figure out what's the right thing to do here? Then everything is going to change, right? Instead of looking for the weakest possible, or instead of like looking for the craziest person on Fox News to dunk on or the craziest person on MSNBC or wherever, you're going to try to find the best version of the opposing argument. And you're going to consider that. You may argue with it. You may end up disagreeing with it as you did before, but you will be tested. You will have to think, and that will make you wiser. Unfortunately, I think people are less and less willing to engage in that. Number one, because the incentive structure does not reward that. Number two, because I think there's a certain point at which you feel that, why bother? Because I'm not going to change anyone's mind anyway. And number three, um, the fear of making certain arguments that, that in fact, uh, you know, I will be, I will be attacked or I will be silenced or I will be canceled. And by the way, that, that can be exaggerated, but it's a real thing. Yeah, you know, on, on on certain issues, and it's not just on university campuses. There is an unwillingness, and I do think it comes back to something. Will and I think you and I may have talked about this before. The it's a, what's necessary to have an open dialogue is an assumption of goodwill. If you and I basically assume that we are both good people trying to find the truth, we are willing to engage in a much more vigorous discussion than if I start off just simply assuming that you are a retrograde Trotskyite or you assume that I am some sort of a, uh, you know, a closet white supremacist. Once you start with those assumptions, you're not going anywhere with the discussion. But if you start with the assumption of goodwill, you can actually have fruitful discussions. Right. And, and I would go further and ask, why do we make that initial assumption of bad will on the other person's part? And I think it's a form of laziness. I yeah. think it's about a weakness in ourselves. So if you start with the assumption about that, the, what, what can I, what is going on in me? What do I need to worry about in me? The first thing you should worry about is I am choosing to find people who are of bad will or choosing to attribute bad will to people who are who might actually have goodwill so that I don't have to engage with the substance of the argument. And so yes. that's a weakness in oneself that you have to constantly, if you don't think about it, you will just keep doing that. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Okay, so uh, w- one last point since I have you you on today, because I know you have been uh, you know following the whole pandemic so closely and looking at the numbers and, and the trends. I had a moment this weekend where I was watching one of the debates back and forth about masking policies or some such thing. And I realized that, you know what, I, I feel like I've kind of lost the plot. I, I, I no longer am absolutely certain um, who I should be listening to, which again is that, that feeling of like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, we are sort of at sea here. Um, we have sort of the annihilation of truth. I mean, do I you know, follow David Leonard of the New York Times, or has he been uh, too casual, or is this person too alarmist? I, you, you know what I'm getting at here? It's like I'm, I'm looking at the numbers of people dying, and it is going up. We are losing, you know, I think 25, more than 2,000 people a day, and yet we have people, you know, who I think are reasonable people who are basically saying, yeah, it's time to 
back off many of these mitigation effects? I mean, so how, how do you navigate this of, of being too alarmist or not sufficiently alarmist? That's a great yeah. question. And, and also I'll just tell you what my, what my rule is. I am looking for people who don't have a firm, I don't want to say mm-hmm. position, but a, a, a dogma, yeah. an ideology. They're, locked in, yeah. I, they're not like, I'm not looking for people who are the pro mask people or the pro vaccine people. I, or the pro mandate people. I am. I'm looking for people who are who who say that we should be using certain mitigation measures, vaccines, masks, you know, social distancing, school closures, case by case, depending on the circumstances, and who can articulate what those circumstances are. So, for example. One reason why I really like Scott Gottlieb, the former mm-hmm. FDA commissioner, he's all, I think I have to now say every time I mention Scott Gottlieb, he's on the board of Pfizer because all these people right. who think you, you shouldn't listen to anybody who's got a corporate connection. But one reason, one thing I really like about him is he's a guy who talks about circumstances. So he's for masks in the schools. He was as of a week ago, right? Said we should keep the masks in the schools that where, where the rates are high, right? Not everywhere, where, where, the, where the pandemic is high, where there's a problem. And then when it gets below a certain level, we should, we should let the mask mandates go. And that's how we're going to have to live through this thing. So I would encourage you, run if you're listening to somebody who is always on the side of mask mandates or you know, always against vaccine mandates, whatever it is, that's a red flag that you need to look for somebody who's a little more judicious. Well, you know, and this also, I think, raises the question of going forward, have we created an environment that will be increasingly skeptical of expertise? I know it was easy early on to say, let's follow the science, but one of the things we've kind of learned has been the the non-transferability of certain kinds of expertise, um, the fact that science, as you point out, is malleable, it's not ideological. And by the, by the way, the, the non-transferable of expertise is that you may be an, in, an expert um, in you know, transmissible diseases. That does not mean you're ne- necessarily an expert in educational policy or public policy. And um, I, I think that's part of the confusion um, is that people who are experts in one thing insist on being experts in something else and it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily transfer as well as what you just described is you know the the danger of being you know, a prisoner of your own narrative and your own dogma both of those things i think are have been have complicated the situation yeah i i completely agree with that and just to illustrate your point I have, uh, among my various Twitter lists that I use, I have one that's sort of politics and I have one that's COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And the COVID, I have some really great experts, really great scientific experts. When I go into my COVID list, like when they're talking about the latest on Omicron, it's really interesting. When they go in to start talking about policy and politics, they are no more judicious about this than a lot of ordinary right. people. I mean, they make terrible, terrible mistakes and inferences. They're a- at least as dogmatic as ordinary people. And so, yeah, it, this goes directly to your point about you have to know, and this is hard, right? Because you're a lay person. You're not an expert in science, but you have to be the one who, who you know, your nostrils flare and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, Mr. Scientist, just went outside your area and said something that is a, it is completely unsupported because this is how you feel as a person, not as a scientist. But can I say one more thing yeah, about expertise, please. which is yeah. um, I'm... I am very, the thing that worries me right now is that in the name of rejecting expertise and finding flaws in, in expertise and what the experts say, I'm here, I'm, I'm pretty much parroting Tom Nichols and some others. Um, they, 
in the name, what has happened is that people like Donald Trump and his ilk want you to believe that the experts are all completely wrong right. and completely untrustworthy so that they, Trump and his ilk, can lie to you and you will believe it as much as or more than what the experts tell you. That is completely wrong. No, and that's that's my big fear right now is this this annihilation of truth. And I've, I've been using that uh, that quote from uh, Gary Kasparov for the last six years, you know, that the the goal of propaganda is not to convince you of one policy or another policy. You know, the, the goal of flooding the zone with with shit is to make you doubt your critical sensibilities. It is to annihilate truth altogether. So and, and this is what I was a little alarmed this weekend because I felt like this was happening. I was like, okay, who do I believe? Who do I trust? W what's real here? And it's become complicated, which unfortunately I think is going to make it easier for the anti-expertise demagogues like Donald Trump or his successors to continue that process. I, I, I think that unfortunately we haven't gone through this realizing that, you know what, the experts got this right. They they nailed it, you know, and, and the, you know, the million American deaths is a reason why we should listen to them next time. I'm not sure that's going to be the takeaway. And I think that's tragic. I, okay, I'm I'm gonna play against you here. I, Please, yeah. I am I I am an optimist about this much, right? I I I believe in the power of evidence, and and I don't believe in the power of all evidence. Like climate change, the problem there is that the consequences are delayed, right? So yeah. people can sort of lie to themselves for another couple of decades, but. In, in the case of something like COVID, the consequences are not delayed. And just to use one illustration, the Republican Party was full of leaders, of, of members of Congress, of politicians who, who lied about vaccines or misrepresented vaccines, claimed that they were dangerous when they weren't, claimed that they were un, less effective than they are, that they were unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And then what happened is the virus, which initially comes into this country through sort of liberal areas, through ports, right, from international ports of entry, then it starts to spread into the heartland. It starts to get into Republican areas. And then at that point, whether you are vaccinated or not becomes the critical thing and whether you die. And Republicans just started to die, thousands and thousands of Republicans. And that became intolerable, right? Like Mitch McConnell and others had to sort of, I mean, McConnell was by far not the worst of these people, but a lot of Republican politicians started to speak about this when their people were just like drop, dropping dead. So at some point, evidence does uh, force you in the most painful way to to become more honest about what's going on. Yeah. Unfortunately, it has been a very painful way with a massive casualty list beyond, I think, many of our you know worst expectations. Will Salatin, thank you so much for joining and welcome once again to The Bulwark. We, we appreciate it. We're very, very excited. Thank you, Charlie. I'm very excited too. It's always great to be on with you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.